Welcome to the LTC University Podcast, empowering and educating across the great state of South Carolina. Here we go. Welcome to the LTC University Podcast. My name is Jamie Preston, and today we've got a special episode. We're going to be doing a Mythbusters episode on hospice and palliative care. And today we have the Vice President of Hospice and Palliative Care Services from SC House Calls, Trent Prater, and then we also have Melissa Chisholm. She's a nurse practitioner for SC House Calls, and she's a certified hospice and palliative care provider. And guys, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jamie. I'm super excited about this episode. Yeah, a while now. Me too. Thanks, Jamie. Great to have. Great to be on. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, and and there are so many myths out there about hospice and palliative care that people just don't understand. As a matter of fact, um, I've seen it. I've seen cases where even doctors didn't know the answers to these things um, because doctors and, and sometimes they don't get a ton of training on hospice and palliative care or end of life training uh, a lot of times. So there can be a lot of misconceptions and different things out there. There's always rumors about everything. Well, today we're going to bust those myths and answer some of those frequently asked questions that people have and that people come up with. So guys, you guys ready to hop right in? Let's do it. All right, here we go. The first myth, palliative care is the same as hospice. So I'll take this, I'll take the lead on this one and then Melissa, please chime in. But that's a huge question that, that I, as a hospice nurse, and even in educating our providers, I get all the time. And people are confused about what it is, but they really think it's the same thing. And while they often do a lot of the same things, they're not. Um, So just a few ways they're different. Um, One being that the palliative care often begins or can begin at the time of diagnosis for a a serious illness. Um, And that may or may not be a terminal illness. Um, but in our in our practice at SC House Calls, we often see patients who are pr- are followed by primary care, and they may go into the hospital. They come out and they have a new diagnosis of heart failure or COPD or something like that, and that's really a, a phenomenal time to consult or order palliative. Um, and that patient, you know, they may be not six months out um, from from dying. They may be 18, 24 months or longer. So it definitely can be, you know, whereas hospice is generally that six months. If if we asked a provider um, this, this surprise question, would you be surprised if your patient, you know, passed away in the next six months and their answer is no, then they certainly could be appropriate for hospice. That could be stretched out 18 months, 24 months with, uh, with palliative care. Um, Patients can also seek aggressive treatment, and that can certainly be concurrent with their palliative care. Uh, whereas with hospice, it's the goal is the goals are somewhat different. They're more with comfort um, and in looking at those end of life issues. Um, often, I'll tell you this: it's not always the case, but often palliative care happens in acute uh, care settings. It doesn't have to, but I know in terms of just our company, we have providers in a, in a hospital in the low country where we, we are their palliative care team managing patients there in PCUs and ICUs. Um, so a lot of times I think the public really, they kind of, um, think palliative is in the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, and it, and it is a lot, but it certainly can be in the community, um, as well. 
Sure. Some similarities are both actually were formulated to reduce cost. And so I'm happy to say that, it's, um, I, especially with hospice, palliative is a little newer, but hospice has really been proven to reduce the cost of healthcare at, at the last six months or so of life tremendously. Sure. Now, I've heard it said that palliative care is not hospice care, but hospice care is palliative care. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So, so you do carry those same, same, the same values and, and care that you provide in palliative when someone transitions over to hospice. So sure. that is, that is true to say, but I would never put the two words together. Sure. I like it. when a provider says, let's put them on hospice and palliative, mm-hmm. that's two separate things. It's right. not the same let's put them on palliative and they mean hospice, you know, that can't use that lingo anymore. Gotcha. Good. Exactly. That's a, I'm glad you cleared that up. That's great. Let's hop on to the next one here. Palliative care is the same as pain management. That's a good one. That's a it good is. one. Think guys, myth or true. I'm going to say myth. Definitely a myth. Definitely a myth. <laughs> So palliative care and pain management are two separate specialties, and um, I think it's it's really important to kind of um, look at look at legislature, look at the definition of palliative care. Um, you know, the the World Health Organization defines palliative care as treating patients who have a, a life threatening illness. Or if you look at CAPSI, the Center to Advance Palliative Care, they kind of define palliative care as serving individuals with a serious illness. Mm-hmm. I love, um, there's a website called getpalliativecare.org. It's a great website for, for learning and seeing the difference of, of who palliative care can serve. And there's a, there's a list of um, different diagnoses that the palliative specialist can provide care to because palliative care specialists can treat pain but the palliative care specialty can only treat pain that falls under the palliative care umbrella so for example if, if someone has pain related to congestive heart failure or COPD especially cancer pain anyone that has ALS or MS, end-stage liver disease or kidney disease, absolutely the palliative care specialist can treat those those patients who have pain and um, in South Carolina can give them a 30-day prescription mm-hmm. for controlled substance. Yeah. So for that one, uh, Melissa, as a juxtaposition to that, those were wonderful diagnoses. So like, um, what about a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, let's say, would that be covered? So that would not fall underneath the palliative umbrella. That's a great question, Trent. Um, Anyone who has uh, gout pain, fibromyalgia, chronic low back pain, pain from uh, being a truck driver for years, or pain from a trauma, maybe a car accident that happened 10 years ago, those patients would have to be referred to a pain management specialist and should not be referred to palliative care to treat that pain. I'm so glad you asked this question, Jamie, because that's that very um, aspect of this that Melissa just talked about is is what I see often um, that 
palliative is consulted for for those type issues and it's sort of this winding nebulous road they go down and it's not necessarily for those diagnoses that really are, are what palliative is is for so yeah. thanks Melissa that was a great answer uh thank you so much I do just want to I think it's important to add especially for our SC house calls providers that are listening so right now our current legislature the way that is written as an advanced care provider, you know, we can write a five-day controlled prescription for patients who have acute pain or maybe pain for a low back or, or something like that. That is, that's legal and that's legit. You can do that. If you wanted to give them a refill on that medication, you would have to speak with your collaborating provider and put that in your note when you give that refill. Mm. Great. Great. That's awesome. And, and I think too, correct me if I'm wrong, pain management, you know, is really, you're, you're trying to manage that pain, but still that patient's able to function in regular everyday life. Whereas not always, but hospice pain management can tend to be a little more aggressive Sure. Yeah. With hospice, you said hospice pain management can be more aggressive. Yes, correct. Yes, they do. We do. With hospice patients, we definitely do use some of the the stronger opioids, you know, to to make sure those patients are comfortable and and their quality of life is good their last few days of life and weeks to life. Good deal. Absolutely. All right. Here we go. Here's the next one. The third one. Hospice is a place you go. I hear this oh. all the time. All the time. That's a great question. And it is indeed a myth. Um, kind of. So I've looked, I'll, I look at it like this, and this is how I coach our providers or, or the insight that I give them. I, I think that hospice is really at, at least three things. It's, it's much more than that, but I think it's a, a philosophy. Um, you know, when we're having a serious illness conversation with someone, it's um, no one is on board with hospice the first time you chat with them because you, we're talking about your m- mortality. Um, so it's a journey, right? And that's where palliative care, I think, can help like shepherd patients into that. But it's a philosophy. It's a level of care. There are four levels of care uh, for hospice, and that's from you know routine home care, continuous GIP and respite. And it is a and it is a place, a place of service. Um, so I've always looked at it like it's that triangle. It's a philosophy, it's a level of care, and and it's where the patient's at. I know in a, a hospice I used to work for, we always said, you know, meet the patients where they are. And honestly, I think that means in terms of their philosophy where they are, but also I've cared for hospice patients in a hotel, in an RV, in campers, in a campground. And so it can kind of be where they are, sometimes as literally where they are. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Melissa. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I would say that most um, hospice services are provided in the home. And, and yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. people don't know that. A lot of patients don't know that, I would say. And and I think it's important, too, for our providers when we when we are starting to have those um, hospice talks and, and maybe it's time for hospice-type talks, especially in the home, I think it's important from the beginning to explain how those services work because many times once they find out it's in the home, the families think that the caregivers are going to be there in the home around the clock. Mm-hmm. That is not true either. Another myth right. I will throw there. <laughs> yeah. So I've even so seen, I've even seen a, a story where it was a patient that was 
it was a mother and son. The son had cancer. Mother was elderly. They were actually living in a van in a parking lot, in a Walmart parking lot. Um, Super sad situation, but hospice was able to come in. They got the social workers involved and they actually got that person in a skilled facility um, and were able to continue treatment um, for hospice in the skilled facility. So it's really, man, it's, I, I like to say both and it's a place and it's anywhere you need to be. Exactly. And often people bounce back and forth. That's one of the beautiful things about hospices. Uh, as Melissa said, the vast majority of, of hospice patient days are, are routine home care in their home, be that an assisted living or, or their home or, or a trailer or a camper or wherever. Um, but, you know, if, if they need to go respite for a short period of time, then there's, there's that place. If they mm-hmm. need to go to an IPU or inpatient unit for, for general inpatient care to, to manage these out-of-control uh, um, crisis-type symptoms, then there's that as well. So I really think one of the beautiful things is that there is fluidity in, in that place of service. Sure. Even in the hospital. Yeah. Like you said, general inpatient, they can go, they can be in the hospital. Um, explain general inpatient a little bit, Trent. Well, it's I, I've, just to kind of put it in simple terms, and Melissa, I'm sure, can explain this better than me, but it's really like the, the ICU. From me, I'm an ICU nurse, so it's like the ICU for hospice patients. Really, if there's there's an uncontrolled symptom that um, it remains uncontrolled despite aggressive treatments to treat that in the home setting, then we have this avenue to send patients to general inpatient, be that in a hospital or, an, uh, or a hospice house. Um, you know, to to manage those symptoms. So they have 24 hours a day around the clock nursing care, and they can just intensively monitor and manage those those symptoms. And the goal being to to manage those symptoms, get them under control, and then send the patient back to their, you know, their home setting as soon as possible. Great. Awesome. It's cool to know that that's still 100% covered underneath the hospice benefit. Yes. Yes. All right, the next next uh, thing here, myth or fact. This is one I, when I worked for hospice, I heard all the time. Morphine is means the end, or morphine makes you die. Oh, boy, yeah. So, so I got this myth from Charlotte and Knight at the Somerville Hospice House, and I've heard it, she hears it, you've heard it, mm-hmm. and, and this is a big, fat myth. Morphine does not mean the end. We use it all the time, and especially with our patients who have um, COPD, lung fibrosis, difficulty with breathing. We'll use a tiny, tiny little bit for um, to help with that breathing. Sure. And also helps with anxiety, and it helps with pain. Mm -hmm. So when you start hospice, you will not have every single one of your other medications taken away and only be given morphine. Right. Completely not true. Yeah. Now, there's other medications you guys use as well. Is Roxanol the same as morphine? So Roxanol is is your liquid morphine concentrate. Mm-hmm. So so a lot of times at end of life, you know, patients aren't able to swallow so well. So we will switch over to a liquid morphine or a liquid codone or um, even liquid lorazepam or Ativan for anxiety. Right. Nice. I think it's funny because a lot of times families will say, let's not use morphine. Right. But they're 
completely okay with using oxycodone, liquid oxycodone, <laughs> or even a fentanyl patch, which is even stronger than your morphine. Right. But it just the family and patient so much more peace of mind. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've heard that one so many times, and you yes, know, and, and it's it's just a big big myth out there. All right, moving along here. You have to be an A and D or allow natural death to be on hospice. So this is a great one. I'm so glad. So the myth, uh, but it's one that I think a lot of people, providers, and certainly patients would say um, that it's it's a truth probably, but it, it's a myth. And it's interesting. We use this phrase, allow a natural death or A and D. It's just sort of a uh, the, the way the terminology is going, but you know, the old terminology would probably be DNR. You could choose to be a DNR or a full code. We're just moving away from that now to more allow natural death. And I, I love this question or this myth because it, uh, it brings to my mind this phrase that is just uh, so special, and that's patient self-determination. And I think in terms of where Medicare is going with this is that, um, you know, they don't want us to dictate to patients or penalize a person for making a choice. If you choose A, then you can't have this. So um, they certainly can be be a, uh, allow a natural death or not. I think, though, that that, that um, as we think about the serious illness conversation and really having meaningful conversations with patients, I as a I'm not a provider, but as a hospice nurse and certainly as a provider, that would sort of clue me into like, okay, let's have a deeper conversation about the, your your goals and your wishes. And do you fully understand what you know going through that that process of chest compressions, et cetera, is and what happens after that? And so I think this asking those clarifying questions and really having a great serious illness conversation helps sort of guide patients um, or allows them to guide themselves really with our help through that process. But, uh, but no, they, the patient has the self-determination to make those choices. Sure. So I, I remember working in an assisted, I wasn't, I worked for the hospice company, but I was serving at an assisted living, helping um, uh, some of our patients and, and, there was a, a specific patient, her, her, she was about, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating here. She was probably 75 pounds. She had, she had cancer. She was in her nineties. She was so frail and so brittle and she remained a full code because the family did not want, they wanted to make sure she, you know, was resuscitate, resuscitated if she was, were to code. And it just took so much education for that family. And it took about a year before they made her an A and D. Um, it, it took a long time, but it's how important is educating families on this, Melissa? It is so important. And, and it, it, it's also important to know that it's probably going to take the same conversation multiple times and, and, mm -hmm ways. Um, I think it's important for the providers to know it's not your job to change their mind. Mm -hmm. So they do, you know, choose to be a natural, allow natural death. Um, I think it's just presenting the information in a simple way so they understand what's going to happen. And oftentimes, you know, it does take a while. Uh, you know, you saw that that particular patient, it took a year before they changed their mind. Right. Um, sometimes 
families never get there. I know just this past week I was speaking to um, someone who had dementia and, and she's like, she sounds just like this patient. She's bed bound. She's contracted, um, you know, probably 70, 80 pounds. And the son is, you know, talking to him about his mother and he already knows in his mind, I want full resuscitation. And when she gets to the point where she can't swallow, I want her to have a feeding tube. Mm. And, you know, for me as a provider and, and knowing the statistics of, of what happens when someone with dementia gets a feeding tube, you know, it, it's not good, right? You have increased bed sores. I've seen patients pull them out. I've seen the infections. Um, and most people, when they do get a feeding tube with dementia, you know, they don't live over a year. Yeah. Right. But for all of this is coming from his, his beliefs, his, he's Christian and he believes that God can perform a miracle anytime. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear a lot that, you know, they believe in the miracles. They believe that it can happen. And, and so sometimes people do never transition over to and allow natural death. And I think that's okay as long as you're you're honoring the patient's wishes and the family right it's hard to do it's very hard for me to do but i also mm -hmm. respect different opinions than myself sure absolutely All that's right. a great point melissa yeah. i think it we're we're challenged as clinicians and certainly providers with sort of main, maintaining a balance between your, your our wishes and like what we bring our even our faith traditions what we bring to to care as opposed to or in conjunction with you know a patient's background and wishes i'm so glad you mentioned that it's important yeah that's so true all right the next one here only the palliative care team can write a 30-day controlled script this is this is probably my favorite myth buster on the list for our SC house call providers. Big, big myth. So you do not need to send, um, you know, your palliative patients to palliative to get that 30 day controlled substance sub prescription. Okay. So the reason being is we don't have enough palliative providers to cover all of the palliative appropriate patients. So if you, you know, I, I do still strongly recommend that you make the palliative care referral and, and get that going. But if, if you have a patient who you've been caring for and know without a shadow of a doubt, they fall underneath the palliative care um, umbrella and definition, then it's okay for the primary nurse practitioner to write the 30-day controlled substance. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, though, if you are going to be the one that's writing that 30-day prescription, um, it's very important to go over the opioid agreement that we have on file and um, let those patients know that we try our best to have one provider writing the controlled prescription. Sure. And, gotcha. and so that's okay. You know, I do see a lot of um, primary nurse practitioners writing a five-day controlled substance script and putting in the palliative referral mm -hmm. because they feel like they can't give the whole 30 days. Sure. And and so um, it, it's not necessary if they fall underneath the palliative umbrella. If it's a five-day script for hydrocodone for gout pain and you put in the palliative referral that is not appropriate. We should not be doing 
thing. Right. <laughs> Good deal. Yeah. Does that make sense? That does. Yeah, absolutely. Now this next one I've seen come up here recently. Um, I've seen this, these questions being asked as an SC house calls palliative provider. Can, can they see a patient the same day as an SC house calls primary care provider? So I, I can start that one and then Melissa, please chime in there. So typically no. Um, and really there's the billing component to that about, you know, providers at the same level of care or just providers, even pharmacists really billing for Medicare, let's say for this uh, same type thing on the same day. Um, Melissa can probably speak as a provider more to that, but I would say that I do think at least in, in our company that per, that poses a unique challenge just due to our scheduling model and how we have, um, you know, telemedicine visits, we have um, in-home in or care management visits. We So we have multiple teams of people scheduling, uh, be, it, be it through a local or a, a regional-based pod or or even others. So I do think that, uh, I mean, I'm excited to hear what Melissa thinks about that, but I think it's just, and, and from my perspective as a leader, it's definitely a challenge so we have all these moving parts and people being scheduled and changing schedules. Um, so I think it's it's just a unique challenge to not sort of double book, if you will. Absolutely. I completely agree. You know, we should we should try not to see the patient the same day, um, any specialist from the same company. So even our pharmacists are not calling the patient same day as as the palliative or the, the behavioral health team sure. or the in going out to the home. So it should be on a different day for billing purposes. Um, that being said, though, you know, if you if you have a patient and, and you need answers now, please, Athena text the pharmacist. You can always Athena text myself, Melissa Chisholm, and I'm happy to help out in any way. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Two nights ago, I had a provider, you know, she Athena texted me at about eight o'clock at night. And she's like, are you seeing this patient? And you know, I was like, well, I pulled up the chart. You know, another palliative provider had, had been seeing this patient, but she's off this week. So, you know, I just, I reached right back out to her. And um, the patient, you know, she just had this instinct that this patient is is probably transitioning and, mm. and needs this. But she had community long-term care, so she wasn't sure what to do. Gotcha. Just through Athena texting back and forth, we were able to get get her um, get her comfortable and and help. It was the patient's sister who was with her and caring for her. So you know, I was able to um, to help. The nurse practitioner was Christina Papladero. So shout out to her for giving great care, great palliative care. And um, later later that night, she texted me back that the patient did pass away within just mm -hmm. a few hours. So right. had I waited until the next day to call her, it would have been too late. Sure. Absolutely. That's great. And that's just great care. I mean, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's all about the patient and absolutely. And, and the care that they uh, deserve. Yeah. And I think um, Casey from billing, right. Would, would say, you know, put that in your note that you collaborated with the pharmacist, Casey Herring, or you collaborated mm -hmm. with Spider Melissa Chisholm, and it does it does help that complexity go up. Sure. All right, the next one here we got two more. 
palliative care is only for the last year or two of life. Hmm. So this one, yeah, this one was a great suggestion from Brittany Harris, one of our NPs down in the Charleston area. And I think it's kind of important to note, um, this is a myth, guys, for the most part, I guess, depending on the company. Palliative care can can um, serve any patient with a, a life-threatening illness, a serious illness at any stage. Any age and any stage, you can have a palliative provider come in. What happens most often, though, a lot of times is we... The palliative team does not see the referrals until a patient has had that chronic disease for many, many years and mm-hmm. is more in stage. Gotcha. So some companies, though, out there um, will only serve, they target palliative patients who are in their last maybe year or two or three years of life. And that's usually because of um, staffing. Sure. It's usually because you know, they don't have enough staff to see every patient with with every chronic disease. So you will see people kind of fo- narrow down and focus in. So if, if you have a patient who you feel like needs palliative care, um, SC House Calls palliative team will see any age, any stage. Um, actually, I think, what, we're only adults, right? 18 and up, Trent, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. But, you know, if, if you let's say you're talking to someone in a different state and they ask for a palliative consult and they tell you, well, they only do palliative for someone in their last two years of life, then ask a different palliative company. Mm. Great, great answer. I think, you know, thinking if you're a global thinker, I think this question, I'm so glad that Brittany brought this myth up because if you're, if you're like a global thinker for healthcare, I'm just thinking about what opportunity we have. If, if people think this, which they do, and of course companies can sort of structure their, their model to see patients in this last year or two, but I'm just thinking about all of the, the, the millions or could be billions of dollars that are spent in the healthcare system every year in the last year or two or six months or 90 days of life. And I'm just thinking if as providers and leaders, if we do a better job at doing things like we're doing today and talking about the differences between palliative and hospice and talking really about more about palliative care, and we started touching these patients beyond, farther out from, from their end of life, I'm just thinking about all the pain and suffering that could be prevented and the the expenditures, the healthcare dollars, because really, you know, we're we're stewards of Medicare's limited resources. Just I'm thinking about all the savings that we could we could see, and then uh, not only that, but more importantly, the the comfort for patients. Very sure. good. Yeah. yeah. All right, last one here, and this is a doozy. This is a good one, and I've heard this <laughs> one plenty of times. When a patient starts hospice care their other medications are taken away and they're just put on morphine. Oh my goodness. You would think this is the conventional wisdom as often as we hear this, <laughs> but it is in fact a myth, right, Melissa? Absolutely. It is. That's right. Now I will tell you this. Um, it is. Um, that, that, and I say this all the time for providers uh, or to providers Seeking, um, when a patient chooses to forego seeking aggressive treatment, that's really different than treating symptoms aggressively. And so mm-hmm. uh, in hospice in particular, I think we treat those symptoms with, with those roxanols and other medications as well, very aggressively. It's all about symptom management. 
pain and symptom management. And so I do think we want to address those those uh, issues like polypharmacy and discontinuing things that really don't have efficacy at the end of life, but by no means um, does uh, does someone starting on hospice mean, you know, the, we're just giving everything else up and we're just doing morphine? Um, because quite frankly, there often are a lot of other treatments, therapies, and medications needed to provide pain and symptom management. It's not just morphine. So, But I think if you just ask people, nine out of 10 people may say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it means. So I think that's a big myth. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I've seen, you know, I think that um aggressive treatment you know comment is is the key you know that's what they're not providing is you know chemotherapies typically unless now and there are you know always um reasons that they do provide some of those things if they are provided for comfort um even dialysis and the those things typically aren't provided um, under hospice care, but they're definitely not taking away your medications, um, unless it's necessary to the care of that patient. So that's great. I love, love that one guys. Thanks for busting some myths today. <laughs> Absolutely. Lots of fun. <laughs> Yes, please send us your myth so we can bust some more. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and we're going to do more of these. We're going to, you know, um, we may hone in on a certain myth and, and, and do something on just that in the future. But guys, thank you so much for all you do. And, and uh, I love this. This has been fun. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you, Jamie. Just a couple of announcements. Every single month on the first Monday of the month, we have an event called the Community Leadership Assembly. You are invited, especially if you're an assisted living administrator or skilled facility administrator and a social worker. You can earn up to three CEU credits. At this event, you'll hear from a couple different speakers, and we're going to provide lunch for only $10. You don't want to miss it. So make sure you come to 1626 on Main in Columbia, South Carolina. You won't re also, if you'd be so kind to write a review for the LTC University podcast, give us a five-star rating. We would really appreciate it. We'd love for you to check us out on social media. You can go find us at LTC University on much. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Let's continue to learn together. Have a great day.